You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, this week on the podcast, I have a special guest, and I should say that less often, but I have a special guest. He's somebody who I have been reading for a very long time. Very early in my career, I started out reading Tom Dorsey. He's the co-founder and CEO of Dorsey Wright. Uh, which runs a few billions uh, of dollars in ETFs and was recently bought by NASDAQ for a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, if you are technically oriented, if you are a technician, chartist, quant, anything along those lines, you will find this conversation quite fascinating. Dorsey Wright is not the sort of technical newsletter that's read by the layperson or the investing public. It really uh, has been a how-to guide for some of the savvier people in the brokerage world and, and sell side. Uh, I recall visiting other people's offices and laughing, saying, hey, there's Dorsey right on the desk. Anyway, we spoke to almost two hours. Uh, it ranged far and wide. If you're at all interested in, in relative strength, portfolio management, technical analysis, port and figure charting, you will find this uh, conversation to be a tour de force. So without any further delay, my conversation with Tom Dorsey. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, my guest is Tom Dorsey. He is the founder and former CEO of Dorsey Wright & Associates, a technical research and advisory daily read that I recall spending lots and lots of time with in the early part of my career. It pretty much was a, a regular on my desk. Last year, this was sold uh, to the NASDAQ for almost a quarter billion dollars. Dorsey Wright is based on an idea called point-and-figure charting, which we'll get into. But the underlying concept is you must have a clear strategy based on objective, unemotional data. Welcome to uh, Bloomberg. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Barry. <clears throat> so I want to start out with a, a quote of yours and, and have you respond to that. Strict modern portfolio theory has driven a commoditization of financial analysis to the detriment of analysts and investors. What does that mean? Well, when you're thinking about modern portfolio theory, it's something that goes back uh, probably 30, 40 years ago. And it's, 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 it's fundamental 
buy and hold. Mm-hmm. A person comes into an office, takes a test, determines that he's a moderate investor, immediate goes into a, into a moderate pie, and uh, that's rebalanced twice a year. And you stay that way as long as your risk level doesn't change. So you've got to come in and retake a test to make your risk level change before anything will change there. So it can miss a lot of changes in the overall market. But it's something that you'll probably find that 90% of advisors use. Makes a lot of sense. So we talked earlier, uh, I mentioned objective unemotional data is key to a strategy, but you have noted that a lot of people don't really have much of a strategy. No, that's the thing. People are human. You know, you, well, it's like Mike Tyson said, you walk into a ring with with all, all kind of plans and a strategy until you get hit one time. Right. Everybody <clears throat> has a plan until they're hit in the face. Until they're hit in the face. And, and that's exactly what happens here. The strategy is great until all of a sudden you feel sick to your stomach. The market is going down and it's let's get out. And it's getting out exactly at the wrong time. So mm-hmm. that's the hard part is what we have done at Dorsey Wright is we've taken the emotion out of it and made everything rules-based. So when it feels, the, it feels the worst, you have to understand that the systematic approach is going to do its job. Sometimes it doesn't feel so good like right now, mm-hmm. but most of the time it works fine. So one of the things you would send along these lines, um, studies have shown investors tend to achieve subpar performance when they allow those emotions to take over and when they fail to adhere to a consistent set of rules. So if you have these rules that will prevent you from engaging in emotional behavior, how does an investor find the discipline to stick to those rules? Well, that's a good question, Barry. How, you know, because again, like I said, you're dealing with human emotion. When you embrace, when you sit down with your advisor and he's using a rules-based system and explains the rules to you and you embrace those rules, that's where you need to step back and just let it happen. When things feel bad, that's the time typically in that type of a, a program to add money to the to the portfolio, right. not take money out. Take, for instance, what we do is probably going to underperform maybe once every four quarters, mm-hmm. somewhere in that nature. You'll feel bad you're going to feel position one way and the market's going the other way. Precisely. Exactly. And typically what happens there, really, when you're looking at a rules-based program like ours, which is relative strength, the... It's like shifting a car. Mm -hmm. It's trying to find traction. So you go from first gear to second gear. You let off the gas. You push in the clutch. You change it from first to second gear. You let the clutch back out. You put the gas back on. You've lost momentum. Mm -hmm. And then once you catch second gear, that's when you found the direction. But when nothing's, when there's no direction whatsoever. Like, Like lately. Exactly. That's when it underperforms. So how did you become a technician? How did you find your way to looking at price as opposed to looking at the fundamentals? Well, Barry, it was absolutely accidental because uh, I was a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch first back in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Um, that the- had to be a rough period. Oh, it was a drop because I started exactly at the bottom of the market. When people had been wiped out between 1972 through 74, sure. I got the distinct pleasure of, of graduating from Merrill Lynch Sales School, mm-hmm. coming back to, to Merrill Lynch in Richmond, Virginia, picking up the phone, and now I'm on the white horse and I'm going to help everyone. And they just been lo- they just lost about 60% of their portfolio. Yeah, that market was more, the S&P <clears throat> was more than cut in half over that period. Exactly. So no one was really interested in a 20-some-year-old kid coming mm-hmm. in to help them. But I realized if I'm going to be successful, I had to become an expert at something. So I chose the option market, which had just debuted the the year before in uh, April of 1974. So I became an expert in options by studying weekends and whatnot. 
ultimately that led to Wheat First Securities, which was a large regional firm. Oh, sure. Hiring me to come across and develop and manage their first option strategy department. That's funny. I mentioned I read you when I was early in my career. Similarly from Wheat First, I read Don Hayes. Yes, Don Hayes. His office was right next to mine. So in the last minute we have, and we're going to spend a lot more time on point and figure next segment, what makes point and figure different from traditional charting? Well, because point and figure charts are not updated every day. Uh, There are certain things that have to happen before a chart is updated. It's made out of X's and O's and looks kind of funny to people, but there is a a learning process that you have to go through when you, to understand the buy signals and sell signals in, in, uh, in point and figure. What has to happen for a point and figure chart to be updated? Well, what has to happen is the stock either has to reverse columns by three boxes or more. Meaning the price has to come down. Has to come down by three. Yeah, typically three. Or go up a certain amount. Exactly. So it's really. If if that doesn't happen, it's not going to be updated. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Tom Dorsey. He is the founder of Dorsey Wright Associates, which is a. Uh, research and newsletter firm that was sold to the NASDAQ for a couple hundred million dollars last year. Before we get into the specific of point and figure charting, you come out of the Merrill Lynch sales program, uh, which I know is a fairly fundamental approach to looking at stocks. How did somebody like you in the early 70s find your way into technical analysts? Well, it was totally by accident, Barry, because when Wheat First Securities hired me to count, to leave Merrill Lynch and come across and develop and manage their first option department, I realized I need to hire somebody who really understood the markets. And I hired this guy from Charlotte, North Carolina, name was Steve Kane, and he brought with him a little book written in 1947 called The Three-Point Reversal Method of Point-and-Figure Stock Market Trading by mm-hmm. A.W. Cohen. And he said, would you read this so you'll understand the operating system in my mind when I come to you with a stock or the sector or the market or that type of thing? I said, I'd do it. And I took it to Virginia Beach that weekend with my wife, read the first paragraph of the introduction, brought me back to my economics education in the university, and I had the epiphany right then that I knew I had to teach this to my brothers and sisters for the rest of my life because it brought me back to Econ 101, which was the most important course I ever had in a university. Supply and demand. Absolutely. That's the key to all of this. The irrefutable law of supply and demand. And this methodology was created simply as a logical, organized way of recording the imbalance between supply and demand. So we we talked earlier about X's and O's. In other words, it's not so much that you're looking at a line chart um, on a screen, but you're essentially looking at X's when the stock is rising, O's when the stock is falling. Um, Why didn't this method ever go mainstream if if it's so successful? Well... I'm actually glad it never did go mainstream because uh, it's because it, for you. it takes it takes uh, an education to to do this. You've got to want to learn point and figure charting. Anyone can look at a regular chart oh, on yeah. a Bloomberg or yeah, but this really you need to have some background. You've got to, you need to have some background and not that much background. I mean, uh, I'm not selling a book, but you could read my book and you and you've got enough. So, the one of the key questions anytime I mention point and figure charting to people. Well, why should I use that method as opposed to regular technical analysis? Well, one of the things is it's, number one, easily programmable because the computer already understands ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. It understands X's and O's like you can't imagine. Um, there are relative strength things that we can do with the point and figure charting that you really can't do 
with bar charts. Bar charts are updated every day, no matter how inconsequential the you move is. You get it minute by minute, tick minute, by tick, as exactly. often as you want to be in the thick of it. So they only whisper when a particular signal is given or, or something should be done with a point and figure chart yells at you. You see a stock rise to a particular point four times and it can't get through that level. And the fifth time it finally gets through that level. It's yelling at you and says, you know, that supply that was at that level all this time could be even a few years. In the case of Coca-Cola back in 19. 1992 could be a few years and finally it's 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 sopped up all that selling pressure and this breakout suggests it's going much much higher i like i like that explanation uh regular charts whisper point and figures yell they shout that that that's really quite <clears throat> quite interesting so one of the things and again i was a reader of dorsey wright for many many people should realize that for those of those folks who might not have been on the sell side on the brokerage side at any part of their career this was pretty much a staple across brokers' desks and strategists' desks all over Wall Street. Lots and lots of people were reading Dorsey Wright. And one of the things that I very vividly remember was your concept of is the offensive team or the defensive right. team on the field. Please explain that for, for the average layperson. That's a concept that dates back to 1947. Really? And Ernest Stabey began thinking about what we needed in the market. And he basically said, we need a soulless barometer that will begin becoming negative when the market's at, at the top and positive when the market's at the bottom. Something totally confounding to investors that when things look the best, we need to start getting negative. So in 1955, A.W. Cohen created what's called the bullish percent index. Now, the beauty about a point and figure chart is a buy or sell signal. A buy signal is simply a column of X's that exceeds a previous column of X's. That's simple. Just think in your mind. That's all. X's that exceed a previous column. So a, a higher price right. beyond a certain range. That's right. And you can see it's, it's so visual. It's unbelievable. The computer can see this easily. When you look at the New York Stock Exchange, which has about 2,000 stocks on it, somewhere in that area, and we calculate the percentage of stocks that are on buy signals, that, that means if we went through, if I gave a seventh grader every chart on the New York Stock Exchange and said, look to the far right-hand side, and every stock you see that has a column of X's that exceeded a previous column of X's, count it, as, count it over here, set it in a pile, mm -hmm. then we'll divide by the total, and we get a percentage from zero to 100. So there are different risk levels, but in general, when it's in a column of X's and rising, you have the football. Mm -hmm. So when you have the football, you should be playing offense. Now, field position is a different story. If you're near the 70% level, mm -hmm. that would suggest that everyone is in that wants to be in, and you may have the football, but your field position is terrible. That tells you what plays you probably should run. If you're down at the 20% line, 20% level, mm -hmm. and you have the football, then you can begin run, run much more uh, aggressive plays. Conversely, when it's in a column of O's and declining, in other words, more stocks going on sell signals, which is a column of O's exceeding a previous column of O's, it suggests to you that the defensive team is on the field. Play it that way. Play defense. And that's probably the most important market indicator that we have ever had created back in 1955. And uh, I could effectively manage the market just with that. So you mentioned uh, that's your favorite indicator. What other indicators do you pay attention to? And perhaps more importantly, what other indicators do you completely ignore? 
Well, the other ones that we pay attention to are bullish percents on other types of indexes, like the NASDAQ. We do bullish percents on all the sectors. Mm -hmm. We look at the percentage of stocks that have positive relative strength in a particular industry sector or the market. And it's the same zero to 100 grid. You look at that like a football field, mm -hmm. zero to 100 uh, uh, 100 yards. 100 yards, exactly. And when you're above 70%, you have bad field position. Below 30%, you have good field position. Column of Xs, you have the ball. Column of Os, you don't have the ball. And then we look at all kinds of things like that, relative percent of stocks. So in, in the last minute we have, define what relative strength is. And again, for the layperson who may not be familiar with this. Relative strength is like an arm wrestling contest. Mm -hmm. You might have two people, and everyone's seen an arm wrestling contest, and you see two people on television arm wrestling, and one guy summarily beats the other guy. He has better relative strength than the person he just Two beat. strong guys, one of them's just a little stronger than the other. Precisely. And, and you could do that for different stocks in different sectors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that we did, we did uh, 28, 29 years ago. We used to do that by hand because we didn't have computer systems to do it. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Tom Dorsey. He is the founder and former CEO of a technical research firm, Dorsey Wright, sold last year uh, to the NASDAQ for 200 and something million dollars. Uh, and now Tom is the uh, CEO and CIO of his own family office running money for uh, his own account and, and the family's account. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about PowerShares ETFs and some of the strategies you develop. But before we get into that, not technicals, but let's talk about technology. How has technology changed what you do every day? Barry, that's a great question because, you know, technology has had such a major effect on our whole industry. Anything that can be automated will be automated. Mm -hmm. And you got to understand that. With technology, our relative strength work that we do for our ETFs and, and the comparisons and contrasts we do, we used to do by hand back 28 years ago. I started charting. I'm Early in my career, I worked with a, a gentleman named Guy Ortman who introduced me to both Don Hayes and you. He's now, I believe, at um, Scarsdale Equities. But at the time, it was Prime Charter, which was ultimately sold to Oppenheimer. Hard to keep track of I remember all the that. companies. I remember but Prime Charter. He used to do charting by hand. He would show me, here's where this was, and you could look at a screen and you could look at a computer, but it's not the same thing as actually writing it down by hand. That's exactly right. We used to do 2,500 a day That's before we had the computer capacity to do it. So technology. How many people would do 2,500 stocks a day? And, and they would do 500 stocks a day, pass the book to the next person. They did that. By the by the end of the week, each person had seen 2,500 stocks. Wow, that's unbelievable. It's amazing. But boy, like just like you said, how do you get a better feel than doing it that way? But you can't do, there, you know, there's only a certain amount of things you can do. Take, for instance, if we wanted to create a matrix on the Standard Poor's 500. Mm -hmm. In other words, I want to create, the way we do a relative strength chart is divide one thing by another. If I wanted to compare Coca-Cola to Pepsi, I would divide the price of Coke by Pepsi. That gives me a number. I take that number. I plot it on a chart. It looks like a regular trend chart, but it's not. It's a relative strength chart between the two. When it's rising, the first one is doing better. When it's falling, right. the second one's doing Precisely. better. Precisely. It's a spread between the two. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And if I did that on the S&P 500, we have to create 250,000 charts. 
In other words, each one relative to all 500 or and relative to And then go to, to number two relative to all 500, right. then number three relative to all 500. Wow. So 250,000 charts, you've got to have a lot of employees or good computer Or power. a computer, right. Exactly. Now we do overnight 7.5 million relative strength charts every single night comparing the world, Malaysia to Indonesia, Indonesia to, to France, France to the United States, everything you can think of. That, that's an incredible number of, of permutations, which actually leads me to my next question. So you run a lot of different strategies. How do you develop these new strategies? How do you come up with these ideas? Well, you come up with the ideas. We sat in a circle for 28 years. Nobody's ever had an office at Dorsey Wright. I never had an office mm -hmm. at Dorsey Wright. We sit together. So there's a constant hum in the office of discussing things and, and talking about different things. And they all come from that type of thing. Person will, a company will call us and say, hey, we're interested in X, Y, Z. Can you create that for us? Then the ideas start to float around. And, and they come in the most unusual ways. I was, looking at, I was looking one day out the window and I saw a guy cutting the grass with one of these big mowers. And I thought to myself, who helps him? Does he go to a major wirehouse and open an account with $2,000? No, they don't let him in the door. So who helps him? So I created a, a, a model called the people's portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I compared and contrasted three things on a relative strength basis. The Standard & Poor's cap weight against the Standard & Poor's equal weight. Both right. trade, they trade totally differently. Totally. Against cash. Cash was in there as the risk management tool of the piece. And the, whichever one won the arm wrestling contest against the three, 100% of the portfolio went in. Over what time period? Is that oh, daily, it, it's weekly, continue. monthly? It, it's just continuous. So how often does that readjust? Maybe once every three years. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Because I was going to say, that's a longer-term cycle. Very long-term cycle, but I defy mo many money managers to outperform it. It's and a challenge. It's simple. Because typically, the cap-weighted does great at the end of a cycle. Right. And then when it rolls over, it's the equal weight that does much better. Precisely. But instead of trying to call the point at that you're at the end of the cycle, let the work do it. Let the relative strength do it. And when that changes and it points to another direction, that's where you go. And so instead of sitting back saying, gee whiz, you know, I've got, all, I've, I've got a PhD in, in this and that and mathematics, and I'm going to figure out when that end is. No, wait for the, the rules-based program to, to do it. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Tom Dorsey. He is the founder of technical analyst firm Dorsey Wright uh, and basically a fixture on Wall Street for – Many years. Dorsey Wright is now part of NASDAQ, having been sold last year. Uh, let's talk a little bit about momentum and what it means. What's the significance of momentum to either a market, a sector, or a specific stock? Simply this, Barry. Everyone understands things in motion. Tend to stay, tend to in, stay motion. in motion yep. until acted upon by an opposite force. That's the same thing that happens in the market. People... Are, are trying to catch a knife so often. They want to buy things that are down or going down. They think that if, the lower I buy it, the better I'm going to be, get a nice bounce back up. That's not the case. Things in motion tend to stay in motion. That's where you want to be. And th what acts upon it, it's all supply and demand. If you have demand for a particular uh, stock, there are more buyers and sellers willing to sell. Price is going to rise until all of a sudden supply comes in. That's where that opposite force comes in. And supply overtakes the, the amount of demand available. The up move stops and it begins a down move. So that's really all it is. So one of the things that early in my career I had explained to me was that when institutions buy something, they just don't go out and buy a million shares today and that's it. Typically, it's in response to some portfolio change. They're buying it for 
larger institutions, pension funds, retirement accounts, and money just flows in on a regular basis. So as long as that 401k or institutional money keeps flowing in, they're going to continue to buy more or less the same names over and over again. And as long as there's a, a limited amount of supply at various prices, that stock is just going to keep marching higher until more supply comes in or the buying slows down. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, absolutely. And they don't go in and just buy today and they buy until they've they've got enough and that's it. And then they go do something else. They have more accounts coming in, more money coming in. They're going to buy in the right places. Take, for instance, back in the year 2000, October 2000, an interesting thing happened. All of a sudden, after a number of years where large cap was the place to be, right? Uh, large cap and cap weighted was the place to be, it switched to small cap and equal weight. And not only it went from growth, which was the place to be, to value. And that was a major change. All you had to do at that point in time with that major change is buy a value stock, equal weighted, small cap, and leave your customer alone for the next 13 years. Mm -hmm. Go play golf every day. You did and much just, better. Precisely. You did extremely well. So these things are not overnight phenomenons that happen. And there was buying pressure in that for probably 13 years until this begins to change. So that, put that into context. You have throughout the 90s, technology, especially big cap, is just running away. You had some, especially on the NASDAQ, you had some 30, 35, 40% years. Oh, yeah. People forget Absolutely. if you're the youngins out there don't remember what it was like in the late 90s. Oh. It was insane. It was like the roaring 20s, had to be. Uh, pretty close. And and at least when you look at it historically, I'm not that old, so I don't remember. But I do remember, I do remember the 90s, and I do remember that was astonishing. That peaked around March of that year. And you're saying it took another six months or so for the money to start flowing in a different direction. It clearly was flowing out of Precisely. the big cap. Uh, you know, you had only a certain number of horsemen in the S&P 500. I think it was something like 10 or 20 stocks were responsible for almost all of the gains in, in Absolutely. the S&P 500. Because toward the end of the 1900s, what you want, that, that's a point in time where when it switches to cap weight, it's saying, you know what, you should own an index. Mm -hmm. Just own the S&P 500. Don't worry about diversifying. That's what you should own. And that's where it was at the end of 1990s and into the year 2000. Um, most of the time from there, it's been a market of stocks where you want to own individual stocks. But that was a point in time you want to own the index. So let's go back to October... 2000, yep. what was it in point and figure charting that would have given you an indication, hey, go from big cap to small cap, Perfect. go from cap weighted to equal weighted and go from growth to value. It's that relative strength calculations that we do, and they're done every night. They don't change every night. I mean, this was five years coming, and all of a sudden you're watching these two guys arm wrestle, and the guy who loses every single time for five years all of a sudden beats the other guy. Why? He's in the gym working out. He's getting stronger. You don't realize it, but all of a sudden that day comes that he wins. And if you're watching it and you have alerts set, you, it, they, it, it can't escape you. So I do recall from March 2000 to October, there was a pretty hefty sell-off. But I also noticed from having been in the industry for as long as I have, that when you reverse yourself and say, I know we've been talking about big cap and growth and, and momentum uh, for a long time, but now it's time to switch. What sort of pushback do you get from clients and investors, when you've basically trained them, hey, you get rewarded by this over and over again, and now a new it's a new game. Yeah, it's not so much the pushback that there's a new game. It's the pushback that when you say there's a new game, 
and they don't see the new game yet. We're experiencing it right now. Right now, we ha- we're, there's a major change taking place in this market. When you think back to 2000, October of 2011, that was a tough year. Sure. But at the end of 2011, all of a sudden for us, the six asset classes, U.S. equities became number one that you should overweight in your portfolio. And that stayed from 2011 to 2016. Just recently, it moved out of number one place. Number two went to number three, slid back to number two marginally, but it's saying something is wrong here. But what's happened is you have healthcare, biotechnology, drugs and whatnot that that helped carry this the whole way Mm -hmm. have totally fallen out of bed. So they had positive relative strength. When they came out, I mean, it was like the snap of a finger, bingo. Now all the things that you were doing that were positive relative strength for those years, you find this year in 2016, you're at a loss relative to the S&P 500. That's when people begin to get upset. They think everything has to be perfect. We're speaking with Tom Dorsey, uh, formerly of Dorsey Wright, and now CIO of his own family office. So if the U.S. as a market was leading the, the train and now is two or three, what has risen to the fore? What parts of the world are, are starting to look more attractive? It's interesting because what went to what number one and number two in that? Now, six asset classes that we have, we look at international equities, U.S. equities, cash, fixed income, uh, commodities, and uh, foreign currencies. What moved into number one place? Fixed income. Huh, that's quite number fascinating. Number two place was held for a few weeks, and it's still marginally there, uh, is cash. Now, that was interesting. Cash has moved up. Now, to us, cash has a symbol MNYMKT. So we look at it just like money a regular market. money market. We look at that symbol like it's, a, like it's IBM or General Motors right. or whatever, and it has moved up to number two spot. Um, Fascinating. Something is going on here, and there's a major change taking place. I see commodities began to move up from number six level to number five level. So they were the bottom of the barrel, now bottom they're coming of the barrel, off the bottom. Now they're beginning to come off of the bottom of the barrel. What about international, which is emerging international markets have been is at the bo- is at the bottom. Hmm. But I'm finding some international, some, some emerging markets. I trade Indonesia direct, doing extremely well there in Indonesia. Huh. So going back to the original concept of waiting for momentum to develop, if you're looking at emerging markets – you're probably, if you're long emerging markets, you're probably not going to see a whole lot of positive gains anytime soon. But if you're looking at something that's ranked six out of six, does that mean there's a lot of potential upside down the road? Yeah, but where's down the road? I don't you know, know. It might be that's a, that's down a, the road. That's a be, trillion dollar question. Yeah, that right could be. A, that's the thing. It's a trillion dollar question. You don't know how long that road is, so you have to wait until the the actual change, your relative strength charts begin to change and begin to win the arm wrestling contest. You'll find. I think if if commodities is the is one of the ones that's going to move up to number one, like two thousand eight, commodities held number one rank for a oh, while. Sure. You know, if that's going to be the case, then you probably find international move up too. During the during the decade of two thousand to 2010 the last place you'd want to invest in equities was the united states right international was the play that whole time well think of all the emerging markets or big commodity exporters as right. long as at the time china was one of the big drivers of that and china's in the emerging market index so that that makes perfect sense so you had mentioned earlier you don't have an issue with cap weighted indices i know some people do you're just suggesting there are times when cap weighted is desirable or more desirable and there are other times when equal weighted is more desirable. That's exactly right. You know, and the, and when I explain cap weighted to people, it's like Congress and the Senate. Congress is 
um, cap weighted. Right. If you look at look at California, the bigger the state, the, more, the, state, the more, more, more representatives. The Senate is equal weighted. Every, Every state gets two. Gets two. That's a great so, metaphor for that. And that's a great, great way to yeah. look at it. So sometimes it's the Senate, sometimes it's the Congress. You just wait to see what happens because this, it's that they both sit down, they arm wrestle every single day, and you watch and see who's going to be winning. It's you don't change on a daily basis. Signals on on relative strength and point and figure can last two to two and a half years. So if people want to find your writings or your perspective, what's the best place for them to track you down? Well, you could go to DorseyWright.com, www.DorseyWright.com. We do a podcast every week that's free to anybody. If you just go to that site, DorseyWright.com, you can see it. And we're one of the oldest podcasters in the country. We're on 500 and some weekly podcasts. And you also, uh, you have a number of books, but the big yes. one on point and figure is called? It's called Point and Figure Charting. Exactly that. And you'll see my, my picture on the cover. Um, it's the fourth edition. Point and figure charting. It's pretty much all you need to know. You know, we've been hiding in the open for 28 years. Right. We, uh, You really read that book, you see exactly what we do. We tell you exactly how to do it. But nobody wants to do it. You know, a Harvard professor once said, uh, people don't want the quarter-inch drill. They want the quarter-inch hole. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what we that's try to provide. Give a man a fish or teach, teach a man a fish. <laughs> it's right. the same thing. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Tom, thank you so much for doing this. I'm really uh, excited to have you here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Barry, anytime. I love it. I enjoy it. I, I said this earlier when we first met. I've been reading your stuff, no exaggeration, for so many years. Um, I feel like I know you personally, and it's funny because people say that to me, and I, I have a hard time understanding that. And now it's like, oh, I kind of get that. You read somebody for a decade, it's like, ah, oh, I kind of not understand what he thinks. I understand the philosophy. And like I mentioned earlier, I started as a trader. I went into the research side. I work with some people where that were religious Dorothy Wright ad adherents, if only because it was clear the fundamental side of things wasn't getting it done, and they wanted a structure, they wanted a model. You're really popular, or at least in my experience in the 90s and the 2000s, Dorothy, Dorothy Wright was really popular amongst a certain contingent of the brokerage community. Right, exactly. It's always been professional for us. Mm -hmm. We don't have any real... Uh, any any real large clientele and individual investors. Not not a retail audience. No, not retail oriented at all. Only professional oriented. And now that business is changing. Are you still finding the same reception to what you guys do, or how has that morphed over the years? Well, back in back in the beginning, advisors needed something desperately to help them. Uh, managed portfolios. And the technical side was just never there at the firm. It was always fundamental. So the technical side resonated with them, and in particular point and figure, because it's easy for anyone to understand. In fact, Tammy was my right hand. Oh, sure. Uh, you remember Tammy? Yes. We've been into Gates Elementary School teaching this to uh, seventh graders. Right. And, and, and they catch on in about 40 minutes. Adults take a lot longer to deprogram. But it's so simple that kids can understand it. And it's it professionals need the help to stay in the business where individual investors will do it for a while. All of a sudden the stock goes down. They thought it would go up. They're going on vacation. They cancel. So we're professional. We, right. And, and our, our portfolio and charting system for what we do in portfolio and charting system is probably the largest in the world on the Internet mm -hmm. for portfolio and charting. 
So I'm, we talked about relative strength. We talked about some of your favorite indicators. What, what are some of your least favorite indicators? And, and I went to Twitter and asked people, and these are the suggestions they had given me to ask you. Um, Elliott Wave, everything rings in the hair. It's crazy. Elliott Wave, you a fan of Elliott Wave at all? No, I don't understand it. Uh, That's five my five waves, three waves, two up, seven down. Dow two thousand, something like that. I, uh, uh, I don't, Barry. I don't get it. You know, that's my problem. I've, I'm not even a member of the Market Technicians Association. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And that's because I am. I'm a member of the Egyptian Technical Analyst Society. Why is that? Well, because I've been to Egypt so much, and I like these, I like them there. Great people. Do they use point and figure in Egypt? Uh, not particularly. You would think a pyramid Some is do. practically a bunch of X's. <laughs> You're exactly right. I've been there uh, so numerous times. There are some people that do. But um, I'm a member of the International Technical Analyst Society. But only because I like to go internationally and meet all the different technicians. I don't understand a lot of the types of things like Fibonacci retracements. Gan angles, you know, waves, it's the cycles. it's the thing, the the sixty seven percent or whatever the heck it is. It's, I don't get uh, it. Yeah, I'm no, just, me neither. I'm it just, always looks good in in retrospect, but never prospectively. My problem is I'm not smart enough to understand that. I, I think that a lot of these things have a degree of randomness in it, and we are easily fooled by our pattern recognition subroutines. Right. Um, <clears> so <throat> people sort of impose what they they you know it's a Rorschach test. People impose order on on that disorder and see things that I don't know if it's there. I, I I think Fibonacci is a fascinating concept. I love the idea of him as a mathematician and what he's done. But um, if you read, there's a fan, fascinating book called um, Against the Gods, where there's a whole discussion on on Fibonacci as a mathematician, as an early person uh, who identified how to deal with risk, how to mathematically determine risk but it had nothing to do with stock patterns or anything like that exactly and that's the problem that's why with me if it doesn't apply to um if it doesn't apply to portfolio management doesn't mean anything to you i don't know how it can because the people don't trade anymore the the regulation that's come on us since 1975 has been incredible the new regulation that's coming from the department of labor now you have to be a portfolio manager you've got to be a retirement portfolio manager these things don't necessarily fit in that vernacular Mm -hmm. so to me i don't use them so let's let's talk about some other uh technicians who who are out there are there any technicians that stand out to you anybody you particularly like follow no or are you oh yeah there's ah. a you know like um number one would be ralph akampura great sure great friend of mine he's the founder of the market technicians association he's just a wonderful wonderful person he's retired now and I would love to go on the road with him and do some talks. That would be fun. We had him here as a guest. He was terrific. He's fantastic. I took the course with him, I don't know, 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was really it was really eye-opening and fascinating. And even though I'm no longer an active trader, I was 20 years ago, understanding what he taught me has just helped my understanding of what's going on. Absolutely. I don't trade day-to-day, but it's nice to understand what people are thinking about Day to day, as someone in the business, right? Um, as I, but who as, else? But as I go a little further, if I go to go to the Far East, let's go to the other, let's go to halfway around America. I would say Muhammad Al Faith in in Indonesia, Jakarta. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gideon Lapian in Chicago, in, in Jakarta. I go to Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. Fred Tam, one of the greatest in the world. So you really? think technicians are are everywhere? 
around the world in every country. It's not just the United States. People think, oh, technicians are here. They're everywhere. You mentioned three countries in the Pacific Rim, Indonesia. Right. What are those folks trading? Well, they trade in Indonesia. They're trading the Indonesian market and the Far East market, mm-hmm. which would be Malaysia. In Malaysia, each each one of the technicians in his own country will trade that his own country mostly. But um, are those whole, markets deep and broad enough and liquid enough that these guys can trade all the a, time? That's a great question because I've been trading now probably for 14 years direct in Indonesia, and I have an account at eSamuel.com. And you could trade the in- Indonesian market yeah. from the U.S. directly through a third-party broker. Yeah, like that. absolutely, online. I mean, the world is open for business. Anyone that wants to do this can do it. And I love trading Indonesia because it's there's a lot of anomalies there that can be... It's still not perfectly efficient. Ex- exactly. So there's opportunities A lot there. of times I don't can't pronounce the name of the company, <laughs> but is that uh, is that important when I look at the chart? That's hilarious. You know, so... We run models on all these countries, too. So you you mentioned models. There's a question I've always wondered about. Maybe you can help me with this. So when you have a model, how could you tell the difference between a model that's temporarily out of favor and something that no longer works? Well, for us, it's always going to be temporarily out of favor Mm -hmm. because I know relative strength works. Absolutely for us, that's the direction we have. It, relative strength has been working since before I was born. Mm-hmm. And that's a long long <laughs> time ago, Barry, let me tell you. And uh, that's funny. it's a matter of being out of favor for a while. Like I said, uh, relative strength will be out of favor one quarter out of four or five. It's going to happen while it's trying to find attraction you know because some years you have barry some years when you look at the disparity between the best performing asset class and the worst performing asset class there's not much in the middle there my, isn't. my favorite graphic is that quilt this the the chart right. of all the boxes representing and and they more than six they'll break it into 12 or 14 sure asset classes and here are the returns for each asset class year by year and some years, the best performing one is 30 40%. The worst is flat or negative. Right. Exactly. That's so, a huge spread. Exactly. That's a huge spread. But a lot of times, you don't find a huge spread in these. So a lot of times, the spread is pretty narrow. And when the spread is narrow, picture a car spinning its wheels, and it's trying to find traction. It just can't. It just keeps throwing the dirt behind it. Mm-hmm. And once it finds traction, something breaks out. Like, um, let's let's say back in 2011, you had the healthcare, uh, drugs, biotechnologies break out. All of a sudden, those wheels catch, and, that f- and the car shoots forward. You know, until then, it's spinning its wheels so that will happen with relative strength when there's no real uh dispersion between best and worst around that time it's so funny i i'm fond of reminding people to not allow their personal politics to influence their investing absolutely and around that time you had the supreme court say uh what we call obamacare was not going to be overturned and we looked at each other and said well hospitals pharmaceuticals the whole healthcare sector just got another 10 million people, courtesy of the taxpayer, are, are going to be consumers. That's probably good for the sector. And we got huge pushback from people saying, well, you know, I don't know. I don't really like Obamacare or this or that. 
I'm not asking you how you're going to vote. That's I'm, right. I'm asking you what sectors are going to do well relative That's to That's exactly right. And you have to be agnostic totally. I mean, you've got to walk down. You know, people will ask me, what do you think? I don't. I, I don't have the luxury of doing that because if I could figure these things out, if I was clairvoyant, we'd be doing this talk from Verona, Italy on my shipping fleet. <laughs> It, it's an expensive indulgence to allow your politics into on either side, left That's or right, right. It should really be kept set. It has to be right. Uh, politics are for the voting booth, but when it comes to investing, you have to be uh, an objective. It's like we're we're right here in a room that's self-contained here. There's mm -hmm. no noise outside, double glass and that type of thing. That's where you need to operate with your portfolio: double glass, no noise, and that's it. Objective evidence. -based that's right, and keep it separate. So. Let me ask you another question. And again, I asked people on Twitter, hey, what should I ask Tom Dorsey? And uh, one of the questions came up was this. What's the problem with buy and hold? Well, the problem with buy and hold, and, 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 there, and there is no problem with that if a person wants to do that because there may be, it may be an investor who says, you know what? I'm going to make a bet on the 500 largest companies of America, uh -huh. and that's it. And, and put that away for 20 years. Exactly. And look at I'm it. done. I don't have to have a broker. I don't have to pay fees. I, I buy it one time. I'm making a bet on America. Fantastic. If you did that 100 years ago, man, you made a great bet. Right. I mean, it's been, it's been a great ride. But what will happen, though, too, is when you, when you put your foot in that stirrup and you just, you're just a buy and hold, you miss things that are happening. Let's say you were buy and hold back in October of 2000, and all of a sudden what happened was the market went to small cap, uh, equal weight. And value. And value. You missed it. So for you're, you're sitting there in a, in, in a, in a cap-weighted S&P 500, the next 13 years you underperformed. I want everyone that's listening to this, go, just go on, on Yahoo Finance and look at the difference in performance between the RSP, which is the equal-weighted standard Poor's 500, mm -hmm. and the SPX, which is the cap-weighted. Look at the difference. Go back 20 years and say, which one would I have preferred to be in? And you'll see that they traded totally different. Right. In the 90s, you want the cap-weighted. In the 2000s, you want the equal-weighted. Exactly. And then after, when when has and that now reversed? We're at, now we're at cap-weight. Mm -hmm. It's been cap-weight here recently. But the, if you look at the long-term picture, it's long-term picture is still equal-weight. But more recently, cap-weighting has been the, been the play. And large-cap has given way to small-cap, or small-cap has given way to large-cap now. So, so now your ETF that looks at both of these variations, mm -hmm. it's always in either cap weight or equal weight. That that's the option. No, it's not. That's not the option. We could be in some of each. I mean, it it doesn't. So how 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 it often doesn't does have that to shift? be that. Well, what we look at, and what's as as a general that? as a general rule, we don't cap weight any of our ETFs. Mm -hmm. They're all equal weighted. Take, for instance, our PDP, our technical leaders. We look through 1,500 stocks once a quarter. Mm -hmm. And we do that arm wrestling calculation on 1,500 stocks. Massive number of charts we have to create. Right. And we pick out the 100 strongest out of the 1,500. And that goes into the portfolio. And that's going to be your, your PDP for the next quarter. And that's done pretty well. That's been outperforming. It's done extremely well. Right. What, what's the track record of that ETF? Oh, God, I couldn't begin to... But Give that's that outperformed the broader, broader oh, yeah, index. It has. And um But here's the thing, Barry. When you look at that, it's almost like a sector rotation kind of model. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at the things in that fifteen hundred universe and it says, gee, we're gonna push you into the one hundred, it's pushing you into the one hundred strongest. 
Mm-hmm. So pushing you into the 100 strongest is going to put you into the sectors that are doing the best. And you you mentioned earlier the strategy that shifted back and forth. Uh, is that an ETF or is that just oh, that a strategy? Was, well, we have probably 85 different models mm-hmm. that run on, on our system, <clears throat> on our portfolio, um, excuse me, on our website. Mm-hmm. Those are like unwrapped ETFs. Now, that's an interesting question. Take, for instance, our FV. Frank Victor, mm-hmm. that's that ETF garnered the most sponsorship in in buying really of any ETF in a shorter period of time. Came out in 2014. In one year, we had about four billion dollars in it. No kidding. Four billion. Now and FV stands for it's at First Trust Five. Okay. So we look at the First Trust Twenty sectors. We do the arm wrestling contest on a relative strength basis. Pick the top five, and that is basically it. We let the top five wiggle back and forth right. until it until they cross a particular level. So that's not readjusted on a on a set timeline. It's no. based on price. Exactly. I mean, it, based on relative strength. As long as they stay in that. In other words, it's like a pitching, uh, like a baseball game. Right. You watch your pitcher, and your pitcher starts out, and he's doing really well until the fifth inning. Then all of a sudden he's starting to hit people with the ball, and they're hitting home runs on him, and and boy, all of a sudden the coaches. Something's wrong with his relative strength. Right. I, I got I to take him out of the portfolio. In other words, I got to call over to the bullpen. He calls over to the bullpen and says, who's throwing the heat? Right. What he means, who's got the best relative strength? Because I got to take this guy off the mound because he's starting to get weak. I put him in the dugout. I bring the guy who has the best relative strength out of the dugout, and he becomes the pitcher. So that's how things come in and out of the portfolio like that. The FV, the First Trust Five, has been... It's gone years without a change. Until recently, all mm-hmm. of a sudden what happened in First Trust 5, the things that carried it over the last five years, which was we were in the healthcare, right. drugs, we were in um, biotechnology big time, We had no, and also we had no oil. No energy. Well, why would it would not let? Why us. would a relative strength portfolio have exactly. a sector that's been in free fall? For that's years? right. But if you were a fundamental portfolio, you'd have you'd have to have part of it. You gotcha. wouldn't be able to be out of oil, which we were out of oil. We wouldn't let it in. So a lot of times, it's what that's you don't own that really makes the difference. So the first trust five was a model. Those were the five ETFs, and and what you did is you bought those five ETFs as mm-hmm. a professional, and whenever a change took place, we emailed you. So you made so the you change yourself. So you were running yourself. that as an ETF. No. You were running that as a separate model. As a to- separate model, and probably about $4 billion was in that model because it's available to our professionals. Now, the interesting thing there is the wirehouse broker who needs QSIP. She has to satisfy compliance. He has right. to satisfy branch manager. Customers want to see things in the portfolio and whatnot. He buys the model. We took that model and wrapped it up into an ETF, which was symbol FV, Frank Victor. Uh-huh. Exactly the same thing, except... One QSIP over here, which serviced the individual investor uh, um, uh, managers right. who pay a fee. Whenever they buy a stock, they have to pay a commission. Right. So this worked perfectly for them to have one symbol that wrapped up that model. But on the other side, you had the wirehouse broker who wanted the QSIPs. So they both trade side by side. They, so Side we, by side. That's yeah, amazing. We have 85 different models that could be wrapped up into an ETF. And and how many ETFs do you have? I'm actually trying to pull that up. Probably my, about uh, 17. Uh, well, total, total maybe 20. I'm not sure exactly how many of them. 
Um, and what's the AUM of all those? I'm trying to do this AUM, without my glasses. If you just look can. at the ETFs themselves, I would say probably after this last decline, mm-hmm. maybe 15 billion. Uh, that's not an insubstantial amount of money. No, it, it's a. It, it was higher before the market market took some away. But we've been at this game for a long time. I worked with the first ETF that ever came out, which was Joseph Rosello, mm-hmm. who was head of uh, marketing at the Philadelphia Exchange. That was the first ETF that ever came out. Which was what? The Cash Index Participation Unit. Symbol Cash B- Index X- Participation Unit. Right. This was back in the mid-'80s. Joseph Rosello was the head of marketing at the Philly Exchange. They brought this... this uh, um, we called it the SIP. It was symbol BIG, which mm-hmm. was Dow Jones, and symbol SNP, which was Standard & Poor's, and they traded on the exchange. So it was the first ETF that traded, but they ran into trouble and got sued by the uh, futures exchange in Chicago because that ETF was backed by futures, not stocks. Ah, very and interesting. The f- so now you have the Dow Diamonds and the S&P Spiders, right. and that's... Same thing, except they're backed by stocks. Huh. Not futures. I wonder why they use futures instead. I well, guess it was, it was cheaper. Just early, right. It was cheaper it was than cheaper going to do it that 500. way. You had the same thing, but it was cheaper. Uh, what happened then, the, the next ETF that came was the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange mm-hmm. came down and used the same template and created the Toronto Index Participation Units backed by stock, and that still trades. That's amazing. That still trades to this day. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for this. Wow, look at that list. That's impressive. Um, so we went over buy and hold. We went over uh, a number of different strategies. And uh, we talked about your love of Fibonacci and Elliott Wave, yeah. which is always, always... It's just it's just that I don't understand them. So it's not I'm not slamming them. I wouldn't say anything against them. In the right hands, every, every, every bit of technical analysis works. But it's just in my hands, the only thing I've ever looked at or used or anyone at DWA has ever done is point and figure charting. So let me get to my last two questions that we skipped during the main part, and then I'll get to my favorite questions. Um, So the past 20 years, we've seen the rise of high-frequency trading. We've seen all these ETFs. We've seen a shift towards indexing. What has any of this stuff done to the strategies that you employ? Nothing. 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 Absolutely nothing. In fact, in fact, the point and figure charts, if you look back to the old guys who wrote about it, A.W. Cohen and Ernest Staby, they always said the faster a chart forms, the better it is because the same players are still there. It's not like a chart pattern forms today and two and a half years, it's still the same chart pattern. Everybody's gone. Right. So you say, wow, the market has moved, got more volatile. Things have gone faster. Okay, that's great. It's even better for us. And um, the other question we I skipped so smart beta has been got, getting quite popular. Is, right. there, is there a risk that becomes too popular? Well, no, you have to understand, Barry, that smart beta really is a marketing term. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not the first person who said that. To you me. know, it really is because to me, smart the, the way they look at smart beta is anything that's not capitalization weighted. Right. But the way I look at smart beta is things that are rules based. That if you're going to be smart about it, you know, let's say with the kale. We talked about the kale before on the radio. If you want to make kale taste good, there are things you need to do to it. If you want to create a portfolio of of exchange-traded funds, there are some things that fit together well, some things that don't fit together well. So with the rules-based program, that's how you're going to create your portfolio. I always look at, do you ever ever watch the uh, MasterChef on TV? Sure. All right. Now, whenever they go into the MasterChef pantry... Everyone runs in with their basket. Same ingredients or different ingredients? Right. Different ingredients. They, they, they got the same. They have to make the same thing, but they're going to pick different things. 
When I look at that MasterChef pantry, I see ETFs. That's all I see. And they're assembling things out of exactly. They're picking the protein. They're picking everything. And with with a money manager like yourself, you have all those things available to you. It's your job to create a fantastic meal for your customers. So you have the selection of everything in that MasterChef pantry, and that's how you create your 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 portfolio for ETFs. That that's really interesting. You know, I always thought it was a fascinating coincidence that the standard for an index is cap weighted when we know there are so many problems with cap weighting towards the end of the sector at the end of the cycle especially uh but that said i don't really see so much of a difference between cap weighting uh profitability rating if you look at some of the things that um research affiliates does rob or not instead of doing it cap weighting they do it by profitability dividend yield all these different metrics you still end up with an index that isn't actively traded you're just using a different basis for assembling it like the relative strength first i'm sorry that's right, the equal weight first you hit on it perfectly barry when you said a different way of assembling it so you come to me and you say tom i'm going to use astrology to pick my stocks and i'm going to come to you with 100 stocks and 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 this is like when jupiter's lined with mars we're going to do this sector and when the, you bring to me the stocks we'll organize it Mm -hmm. we'll do we'll put our relative strength on it organize it if it's junk that you give me i'm going to give you the best junk i put the best junk portfolio you're putting I can it put in together. order based on relative precisely strength. precisely so it's two hands you and what's the name of that etf by the way the astrologer relative strength <laughs> ETF. is that one that's out there no there's not one out there but you never you never can tell when that'll happen you know but but that's the idea. This you play with piano with both hands. You could give me. I love to have a fundamental report saying, "Hey, these stocks are truly right and just. They're fundamentally sound, etc." Can you deal with these? Beautiful. I love it. First Trust does the Alphadex way of fundamental research. Alphadex. What it's is called that? Alphadex. I'm not sure exactly how. They haven't ever come to me and told me how they do it, but they do a great job at it. They give us the list. Everything that First Trust does is Alphadex fundamentally organized. Uh -huh. Then we take that fundamentally organized and create the portfolio and manage the portfolio. And so we play the piano with both hands. They play the fundamental side. We play the, the technical side. I worked with a friend years ago. He used to call that technomentals. Here's the it, techn yeah. technical side. Here's the fundamental side. You marry the two together. Ralph Acampora, you mentioned earlier, was fond of saying fundamentals tell you what to buy. Technicals Techn tell you when. When, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. All right, so let's jump to some of my favorite questions. These are what I ask all my guests, and and usually we get some um, we get some some interesting questions. You mentioned you were an economics major at university. What did you do before you found your way to Merrill Lynch? Well, I spent four years in the Navy first, mm -hmm. and a couple in Vietnam off the uh, coast in the uh, what South China Seas. Uh huh. Though so I was in from 19, uh, 1967, beginning of nineteen sixty seven. Oh, so you saw some some, uh, yeah, some Vietnam, action over yeah. there. I didn't see the. I was on an aircraft carrier. Okay, the planes we shot off saw the action. So you were relatively safe uh, working yeah, absolutely. on working on the ship. Absolutely. So so how did you get from being well, on a carrier back, in the South Pacific Sea to Merrill Lynch? That's when I went back to college, mm -hmm. and uh, so I did the Navy first, college second. I went on the GI Bill, and going to school on GI Bill was well, I could I could pay my tuition, but you didn't have much money left. Right. And by the end of the by the end of that, I was driving a car with no reverse, and right. you know. So by the time it was <laughs> it was time to graduate, I said, "I'm tired of being poor." 
Wait, you're driving a car with no reverse. No reverse. You had, wherever you parked it, you had to make sure you're coming straight out of it. That's hilarious. I I had a VW bug that there were periods of time where I had no battery, <laughs> but it was a stick. So as long as I parked on a hill, that's right. It was the same thing. I could pop, pop it into gear and right. Uh, that's, that's the so stuff fun. we did back then. You know, when you, I, hey, you're college, you're broke, you're putting working your way through school. No way I could pay to get a reverse put in that thing. So I just kept on going forward. That's hilarious. But. And by the way, that's where the momentum strategy came from. As long as you're facing the right direction. <laughs> exactly. There you go. That's uh, who knew so it was I so subliminal. So subliminal. I got to go where there's money. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine said, well, that'd be Wall Street. I said, well, what do they do? He said, well, it's like Merrill Lynch and, you know, stock market. So I applied to Merrill Lynch. I applied exactly at the end of the uh, terrible bear market that customers had gone through. They were not hiring anyone. And uh, most of their customers had left them. So I went to Richard's Wine Cellars which uh-huh. was part of Canandaigua Industries, one of the largest wineries in the country. This was in Petersburg, and I was a production supervisor. Until, and, the, and this is the way paths happen to you in life. Certain things happen. You can take the path or not take the path that leads you somewhere else. And this came to me, and he said, you know what? I was at uh, um, a career counseling meeting up in Washington, D.C. He said, Merrill Lynch is, is now hiring. And I said, you're kidding me. So I reapplied to Merrill Lynch. I badgered them to the point they couldn't take it anymore. Gave me an interview. They figured, hey, this guy's a good salesman. Yeah, he won't. Hey, he, he, the secretary of the manager finally called me. Says you got to stop this. He can't. You know, you kill. See you Tuesday. I knew I was in. I still <laughs> didn't know what a stockbroker did. <laughs> it didn't I, matter. No, it didn't matter. It was like I'm in the best company, the biggest company in Wall Street. Wall Street's kind of cool. I don't know what they do yet, but I'm going to study. And when I pass the series seven. In one second, when I saw that on at One Liberty Plaza down here, uh-huh. I saw that posted up there. I went from a nobody to a somebody in one second. How long did you stay at Merrill Lynch for? Well, I stayed at Merrill Lynch about five years, close mm-hmm. to that, and then went to Wheat First Securities to develop and manage their option department. All right. And you were with Wheat First for how long? Nine years. And nine years because I had set the age of 40 to start my own company. That was the last, 40 was the cutoff date. Uh-huh. And at 39, I gave my resignation. So I, I had to go. You were on target. On target. I didn't, I didn't do that till 50, but- <laughs> That's okay, you but did it. It, it, it worked out. Um, that's that's kind of fascinating. So you were at, at two well-regarded places, Wheat First, which eventually became- Wells Fargo. Wheat, well, Wheat lot First of was bought by- Was bought uh, by- um, First Union. First Union, Wheat First with, Union. And then there might have been one or two other steps before that became Wells Fargo. I think Fargo. there were two other steps before Wells Fargo finally took them over. And, and you were at you were at Merrill. So who were your mentors at these places? Well, I had no mentors at those places. The two mentors I had in my, in my business life was one, the late Jim Yates. I know the name. Jim Yates of DYR and Associates, Dalton Yates and Revco. Jim was, I think, the most premier option expert in the world. To me, he was. He was able to teach me an understanding of options that I have rarely ever seen in anyone else and rarely ever utilize his way of thinking, which brought me back to Statistics 101, the second most important course in college, right? and the normal distribution. And Jim was very important in that. Next was was at Chartcraft. And... um, Oh my! Thinking about his name, Chartcraft. I know yeah, the name. that was Chartcraft um, was has been around for a while. It had been around for a long time. Chartcraft and Investor Intelligent, and the late Mike Burke was the president, not president, but he was the editor mm-hmm. of Chartcraft and and um, um, Investor Intelligence. They came together, 
And Chartcraft was the was the company that sent you the monthly books on point and figure charting. Sure. You got the big thick books and they updated you once a month and that type of thing. Mike Burke was one of my mentors. He was a great guy. He was almost like he was almost like Einstein. He would get up in the morning and he would walk out and one sleeve would be buttoned down, the other sleeve would be rolled up. And he, he wouldn't Didn't figure know. out why why'd I do that, you know? But he was the very clear thinker. And one of the things I'll never forget about Mike, he came to me one, didn't come to me, but we were talking one day and he said, Tom, he says, let me tell you something. I said, what's that, Mike? He said, the market will do what it wants to do. And that was it. Didn't say anymore. And that's so profound that when you sit back and think about it, why watch TV? Why get ideas from all these different places when the market will do what it wants to do? Then listen to the market. What you have to do is listen to the market. Don't listen to something else. The things that you think the market should do because of XYZ, because of Janet Yellen did this and, and Greenspan did that, the market will do what it wants to do. I started as a trader and I used to have those discussions with people and I would get these long convoluted explanation as to why this should happen or I, I love hearing people say, well, you know, if the market wasn't interfered with, here's what would happen. How do you know? How do you know what the market would do? And how do you how do you know that every time the market you know you look at history every time the market is cut in half there's always some sort of response from the powers that be you could pretend it doesn't exist but the market tends to anticipate that and it tends to respond regardless of whatever our narratives are that's exactly right it's going to do what it wants <clears throat> to do and you could either be along for the ride or not that's right exactly or be going in the opposite direction it's it's uh, and that's always been summed up with uh, don't fight the tape. But some people never seem to uh, learn that message. Well, today with twenty four hour news blogs, all kinds of different things, you can get news and information about the markets twenty four hours a day everywhere you go, and there's always an axe to grind. There's always a no. There are no disinterested parties, right? You know. So you've got to be disinterested yourself. You've got to look at the, the rules and regulations that you set up. You know, it's, it's also fascinating. You mentioned that. I always hear from various people about, well, I'm going to do this as opposed to that because I've read all this research and I think this is what's going to happen. My answer is always, yeah, but everybody's read that research. It's out there. It's public. You're trying to forecast based on, on, uh, on a, uh, some public information if everybody has access to the same info and you're if you're using to use your your chef metaphor if you're using the same ingredients as everybody else <laughs> you can't really do anything special everybody is That's right. is cooking more or less the same thing if you want to do something special you need some special ingredient or special approach and either it's going to be a disaster or a home run but if everybody's cooking the same things and reading the same things Everybody is going to be part of the crowd, and they're going to be so-so performance. Yeah, and, and people today, you know, money managers today, I, I implore anyone I talk to, I say, whatever you do, get it computerized. Anything that can be uh, computerized, anything that can be, will be. And you got to understand that. A lot of people out there that thought they were going to get by with a particular investment approach is now out there for everybody. So let's let's talk about other investors who might have influenced your approach to point and figure. Who who else has been an if not a mentor, but who else has influenced your thought process? Well, it's going to sound like a strange answer, Barry, but no one. No one. Those two were the most important to me, 
and for what I learned from them and how they opened my mind in the way they think it's a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I I can continue on down those two lines. Really? That's fascinating. And I I try to put the blinders on because... um, These things are distractions. There's a lot of noise relative to the signal. The noise. You know, I have to block the noise out. So a couple of things to me, you know... is is simple, straightforward. Economics to me is the most important, and Econ 101, the most important course I ever had. I was going to ask you if statistics was the second most important. Stat 101, because it taught me the normal distribution. Those two things right there, the irrefutable law of supply and demand and the normal distribution, my God, you have a lifetime of thinking about strategies and things. Like if I mentioned... You said, you know, if you look at a normal distribution, I'm looking at men's heights in the world. Right. Some some men are too hot, tall. Some men are too short. Most of us are in the middle, Barry. We're right. one standard deviation above or below trend. If you look at every trade you made in the market, and we've done this with our models, 68% of us men's heights are in the middle. 68% of everything you do with will be one standard deviation above trend goes up a little, down a little bit, down, up. So it says if 68% of the time everything is middling, what's the right strategy that will be a neutral strategy? So for most investors, what's that neutral strategy that makes the most sense? Covered writing. Oh, really? Absolutely. Because you're dealing with something that 68% of the time is going to be hanging around the center. You can't do naked straddles. You can't right. do na- you can't do naked anything. You're going to be in court. You mean as an advisor? Clearly, as an advisor. Clearly, there's a lot Absolutely, of risk. Absolutely, yeah. There's a ton of risk relative to reward with that. And but that the covered right is the one strategy that's a neutral strategy that's right 68 So in other words, you're, you own an index or you own a group of specific stocks. You're writing call options on this, right. so you're taking in that that income stream from that, and the only major shift is going to be either when you get the stock gets called away to the upside, or if there's a downside move, which uh, ultimately either leads to new covered writing or using a stop loss strategy to get out of. Exactly, you understand it completely, but also too for someone like yourself where you run a tremendous amount of money, you and could I run look a little at- bit of money. You could look at you, you run could, a tremendous amount of money. <laughs> I, I'm I'm running a, a a smidgen. You could create an index that let's say looked like the Standard and Poor's 500 or looked like the Russell 2000. Right. And there's index options that trade on. Sure, those. of course. So you could sell these index options against that portfolio where nothing is capped off. So two out of sixty-eight percent. So it's more than two out of three times. Yeah. This is going to be an outperforming strategy. Absolutely, absolutely. That's and that and that. Takes you to Stat 101. Anybody should just go Google normal distribution, learn it, love it, embrace it, and uh, it just gives you an idea of what to do. So whenever you look at, uh, you might buy a particular stock. On our charts, we have a normal distribution on the side of of each chart. So if you see it move up to where it says top, mm-hmm. your three standard deviations above trend, that's telling you the stock has done well, but the probability is it wants to go back to the middle. Right, there's mean reversion coming back. Mean reversion, that's the point you'd sell a call against, the position. So there's a lot of simple stuff that you can do Uh, with Stat 101 and Econ 101. Fascinating. So let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books out there? Well, you you said books in general, right? Mm -hmm. Anything from uh, any any library that you can walk in or Amazon or whatever. My favorite book, Mm -hmm. that when I finished reading it, I said, what do I read now? is Shantaram. Shantaram. Who wrote that? <clears throat> I can't think of it now. Shantaram. Who wrote it? 
Um, but it's about a guy who breaks out of a, um, a maximum security prison in Australia, goes to Bombay, India, and it begins there. Oh, my Lord. You're not going to put this really? book down. This book, and I, I suggest you listen to it rather than read it because the book is so thick. Listening to it, you get all of the accents and things that are involved in it, the Indian accents. Uh-huh. It's wonderful. For me, I listen to books because I'm dyslexic. Uh, and I, I Easier than reading. Yeah, I don't read books because it's too hard for me. It was hard for me all my life to read. In fact, I, I wrote my first book before I read my first book. Huh, that's fascinating. But when books on tape came out, then I found out I was a bookworm and I didn't even know it. You know, so whenever I get in the car, I'm pressing the button. If I'm on the treadmill, I'm press. I'm listening to books constantly. So Shantaram, I would say, listen to the book. That sounds interesting. What else uh, do, do you like? Another one I like is the four-hour work week. Tim Ferriss. Excuse me. Yeah, four. It's four-hour work week. Exactly. I was gonna I was about to say day, but it's week. The reason this is important. One of the guys in my office is a huge fan of his. The reason that's important, Barry, is I believe that through technology. If you have things that are computerized, everything that can be computerized is going to be, you should be able to run a billion-dollar portfolio from a cruise ship with an iPhone. We've been talking about this pretty consistently. And again, I've been finding that running a small office, what we're capable of doing with 14, 13 people, 20 years ago would take 50 people to do. Absolutely. Just simple things like the portfolio rebalancing once or twice a year – and things like tax loss harvesting, it used to take three or four green-visored right. accountants a week to do this for a, a portfolio of a few hundred families. Now you push a button as a software called iRebal that's integrated into the custodian, and you could set it up, go find me some tax losses to offset the tax gains, and it's it's astonishing. See, that's a great example. Back just, in the day, amazing. you said you needed all these people with the green shades for on. For a week. But exactly, for a week. Now it's been automated. What will be automated can be, will be. So now it's automated. So why couldn't you do that from Thailand? You certainly could. Why? Then why aren't you on a beach in Thailand? Because I'm here talking to you. <laughs> but the concept is... You can. And that's why the four-hour work week, what's cool about the four-hour work week is it's got all kinds of websites and things you can oh, go really? to. Yeah, that will help you become more efficient yourself. Like if you wanted to have an assistant in India, you can do that. There are places you can go in India. They'll be your assistant, just like she's with you now, except mm-hmm. when you're asleep, she's working. She's sleeping when you're working. You want get get me reservations for dinner tonight, so-and-so. I also need flowers for my wife. I need you to do this. Whatever, it's there available. So the four-hour work week is a great book to make you think about more things that you can do, become more competent in less time. All right, that's book number two. Give me one last book. I love this broad selection of stuff because normally it's the intelligent investor and, and things like that. This is really fascinating. Yeah, and um, you know, all of a sudden you start to go blank. You think about all of the books that that that. You've what are you read. reading right uh, now? Oh, right now, what am I reading? I'm finished. That's a great question. The Great Deformation. Um, I know that the was title. By, I'm trying to remember who wrote it. That was by um, oh God, what's his name? He worked for Ronald Reagan. Got taken out to the woodshed. Stockman. Stockman. Exactly. Stockman. That this was a, the phrase the woodshed too. I remember exactly. That. Remember I that I got taken out to the. See, I'm old exactly. enough to appreciate that. Remember that. Well, the interesting thing about this book is, if you really want to understand the deformation or the the desecration of our free market system within with interest rates and the 
and the financial system. Mm-hmm. This is going to give you a great understanding going back to FDR days. It's not an easy thing. That's why I, I think you should listen to this book too. Because As opposed you, to read it. Yeah, if you sit down and start reading it in five minutes, you might fall asleep. Right. But if you're driving the car and you, know, you, you fall come, asleep, you're really in trouble. You're, you're going to stay awake. <laughs> It's a pretty meaningful book, and I find myself going back over and re-listening and re-listening. He's a fascinating guy. He really is. I saw him, I think it was Stephanie Rule. I think it was on Bloomberg. I saw him describe how the way he described it was, Stockman described it was, the financialization of the U.S. economy took 50 years to slowly develop and then blew up in the crisis, and we've we've basically, the tail is wagging the dog. He used to say... Finance and Wall Street, that's where he came from. He came from finance, went into politics, went back to finance. Finance used to serve industry, and now finance is just another industry, and that was a major shift, if I'm not not misquoting him at all. You're right. And And things you learn in this book is like in 1932, the Thomas Amendment, you wouldn't even think about this, but gave FDR the right to cut the gold backing on the U.S. Right. dollar by 50%, uh, gave him the right to back it not in gold but in silver to create money if he wanted. And that was the beginning of the financial system getting totally out of hand. And every administration, bar none, from there forward has carried it even further. And the Obama administration now has carried it even further. Every one of them have, whether you're Republican or Democrat or whatever. Right. But you think back to 1932 when this happened with the Thomas Accord, that was the point at which that ball started rolling. The fear was that you were constrained with what the the uh, Treasury Department could do by the gold standard, which had its own problems, and now it's unconstrained, and you have a whole different set of problems. Exactly. And it's it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah. Let me give you one more. Me okay. You one more. All right. Wait, Listen, I could talk this, books all day. Because this, this, this is great. Uh, the author is Martin Troost, T-R-O-O-S-T. And his are travel books, but it's not the kind of travel book that you would think, okay, let's go to Hawaii and here's where you need. He actually goes to these places and talks about what it was like for him to live there. And um, all are, are of these his, a series of books or is this is there he's a specific done book title? Three, one was um, Sex and Drugs with the Cannibals or something like that. That sounds vague. I mean, familiar. it's he is so funny. He's a great wordsmith. I think that would be. Uh... That'd be dangerous. Yeah, it could be <laughs> could be very dangerous. But he, he talks about living in Vanuatu and and what it's like to live there. And but it's not a travel book where you're gonna oh gee I'm gonna go to this hotel and stay there. No right. way. Then he does the the one of the my favorite was um was about China, and it's called Lost on Planet China, which huh. is a total riot. His books really? are all as funny as you could possibly get. He's a great wordsmith. And um, T R O O O S T. Yeah, Truce, Martin Truest. Martin Truest. I'm going to take. And I would listen to his books because Cyrus Vance, who reads the books, really, really does. That is not who you would expect would be reading books on tape. Now you know Cyrus Vance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he is a big reader of on tape. Maybe there's two Cyrus Vances. Uh, the former political guy and and is that mm. am I thinking about the right person? Maybe there's two of them because this he I I have searched for books that are read by Cyrus Vance. He's that good. Yeah, so I w- I would really? read the book because he read it. That's fascinating. All right, when I by the way when I post this on on the blog and on on Bloomberg, I'll include the list of recommended books so yeah. if people want to want to find it. They'll be able to get it. So last couple of questions. I know I only have you for a little more time. Um, So what's changed since you've joined the industry? And is it a good thing, a bad thing, or does it not even matter? 
And what's changed is regulation. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing that's changed. Because if you think back to 1975, Barry, were you in, you were in business in 1975? I was in high school in 1975. High school, okay. But I do recall when, <sighs> when the commission ceiling was removed. That was the early 70s. Exactly. That was a huge change. That's exactly where I'm coming from right now. That's put us on the path of where we are now with fee base because that was May Day. May 1st, 1975 is when commission deregulation happened. And we used to charge massive commissions mm-hmm. uh, to, to customers. All the same thing, but they were massive. 1975, when deregulation came in, Charles Schwab started. I and recall. that was the first year of Charles Schwab. And I can tell you right now, we laughed at Charles Schwab, said, who would ever deal at a discounter? I mean, that would- What are they, $2 trillion dollars now? I mean, we used to wear three-piece suits, and if right. you needed a standard and poor sheet, we could mail it to you. Right. <laughs> that was technology then. Right. You know, we've got the technology. It's the post office. And Charles Schwab began, that was what began the move toward discount and lower fees, and 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 for us- this was the beginning of a change from commission to fee base. Because what happened is I think the the um, the firms like Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, the partnerships looked at this and said, you know, this is not for us any longer. Let's sell out to banks. And all of them did. Payne, Weber, Jackson, Curtis, Smith, Barney, Harris, Upham. They all sold out to banks. Banks became the owners. And what do banks understand? They understand fee. They don't understand commissions. They understand fee and they understand risk. They're all concerned about defaults and what have you. Precisely. They don't get commissions. So everyone began to move more toward the fee basis. Well, Dorsey Wright and Associates, I looked at at us as uh, a pilot fish. You ever look at a pilot pilot fish? Sure. It's a little fish that follows a shark. He doesn't doesn't get close enough to the shark's mouth to get eaten, but he stays back and no no other fish bothers him. Lots of crumbs and and a little protection. (laughs) Exactly. A little protection. That's right. That's us. We were pilot fish. And, and the shark was Merrill Lynch and, and all the rest of the big guys. So whatever direction they went, we had to go. So that's why we began creating models and fee-based models way before anyone else. Because we knew if I didn't follow that shark and I kept doing commission business and trading business, that's where they were going away from. And we had to go with it. So that began the move toward fee-based, which is which is where we clearly are now. The last data point I saw on this between Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch they, 20 years ago, they were less than 10% fee-based. They're now about two-thirds, about 65% exactly. fee-based. That's an and amazing you know what, shift. And you know what's going to cover the other third? Is this new regulation now from um, Department of Labor. The fiduciary standard. Fiduciary but that's standard. on 401k. That's on retirement accounts. It's on retirement accounts, exactly. Which is not an insubstantial amount of it's their- It's not. I would bet a huge chunk of their fee-based stuff is already accounting stuff. And, and the 35% that's active- is probably, although you would think the tax qualified standard would would be better for active than uh, than the fee based, strictly from a tax perspective. Well, it's going to change things totally. Where the guy that that typically doesn't think about the fiduciary and operating in the in the right exactly for the customer on the same side of the table. Right. But here's something also. If I come to you and I say, Barry, I want you to take your IRA, your IRA or your 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 corporate retirement account and roll it over to an IRA and I'll manage it. Boy, I better be right in telling you that, and I better give you all the reasons, and I better document this. And when we do this, you and I are going to sign a contract. Yeah. That's what's different now. The three changes that have become really, really significant, when that happens, you have to say, okay, I'm going to be like a lawyer or an accountant, and I'm going to be a fiduciary. And second, 
I have all these transparency rules. Anything that I need to disclose, I'm going to disclose. And third, if there are any conflict of interest, there was just a, a huge article in the New York Post today about well, Daily News or the Post, one of them, about one of the big firms. I don't remember which is running these sales contests. Sell XYZ. Oh, yeah. Win a, win a, a, a vacation trip. If you're getting paid outs and therefore it's not necessarily the client's best interest, but you want to win a contest, you better disclose that. And if there's a conflict, you better be up for it. I think that for the long haul, it's going to be good for investors. But over the short term, there's going to be an adjustment process. There is. There really is. Because a lot lot of advisors who deal in uh, IRA type accounts and rollovers, and, and that's mostly their business, are going to find that their income is probably going to be cut in, cut in half. You know, the, the thing that started this whole process way back when was a lot of 401k and the nonprofit version of it is 403b. There were studies that were showing that they were jammed full of uh, high cost annuities that were running like a, you complain oh, about two yeah. and 20. These guys were charging six and 8% right. in retirement accounts. And that was just so egregious that started the ball rolling downhill. Um, so, you know, it always unintended consequences, yeah. regardless of, of who's doing so it. So back to your question, regulation. I mean, that that's the, that's the big, that's change. the main thing that has happened along the way. You know, back, back in 1975, if you came in and you want to do an option trade, Barry, mm-hmm. I would do the option trade. No documents needed. No, we'd send those out two months later. Oh man, you can't to, even talk today, about options without. I'd be handcuffed full, by the end of right. the day. Right, you you want to discuss <laughs> options? You have a whole bunch of paperwork to send. You have things signed that you need back. It's uh, there are a lot of eyes to dot and t's to cross. Not that it's necessarily again, on the on the um, edges. There was some really bad behavior, and that's what led to a whole lot more regulation yeah. to. to it's always that way. You have to stop the the bad actors in order to uh, uh, you have to be overbroad. You're going to bring up a whole lot of um, uh, you're going to bring up a whole lot of of good actors when you're trying to stop the bad actors. Yeah, absolutely. No, no doubt about that. So, what do you see if regulation has been what's changed over the past twenty or thirty years? What do you see as the next major shift that's coming? Uh, to well, Wall Street. Let's let's look at ETFs. The next major shift, and we're already doing this at Dorsey Wright, is embedding risk and risk management in the ETF itself. How do you do that? With cash. So remember we said I said money market MNY MKT is a symbol to us. Right. So take, for instance, our first trust five. The first trust five operates by itself and it keeps the strongest five out of 20 sectors for first trust done extremely well. Over time, the returns have been been very, very good. It's now 40% cash because we have a first trust five plus cash. Uh-huh. So now cash has already moved up the level and overtaken 40% of the uh, portfolio. And that's done on a relative strength basis. Not relative a, strength. Hmm, I think this is no, what's going to happen. Relative strength. This rules. I'm not sure about this Trump guy. I'm going to move to cash. That's There's right. None of that. No, none of that. Has to be rules based. So there's no gut feeling involved here, no emotion involved. It moves in. So it's moved to 40% cash with it. So these are. This is what's going to happen. Now, There's uh, um, Horizons has a, has a good covered writing program. We have a model that has our PDP, which are technical leaders, plus the Horizon covered right. The Horizon covered right acts as that, um, that buffer, that acts as that, the breaks of the portfolio. So it'll bring that piece of the equation down to a 0.5 delta. Point being is we're creating products now with risk management embedded in it. 
That's fascinating. You don't really hear a lot of that sort of of strategies that's being developed. Next, that that's really fascinating. It's the next you step. see this as the next phase of ETFs. Ab- absolutely, you're going to have to do that because again, it takes that uh, human emotion out. And a lot of things that you have, you say, you know, we have the first trust five that stays. It's always going to be a hundred percent invested, even in in markets that you shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But that's a that's a a market call on on our part. So we can't go in and say, "Gee, we think the market is going to go down now. Let's take the first trust." So five someone who's an allocator who says, "I have a slot for equities." Hey, I'm going to go to Tom Dorsey and say, "Give me the five best sectors, and I'll build it into this, that's and right. I'll I'll deal with and you'll deal market with risk it. with you'll, my bond and cash." Exposure. You'll deal with it exactly. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's embedded in in the ETF, and and now I'm down to my last two questions, which I are my favorite two when I ask everybody. So imagine a, a recent college graduate or a millennial comes to you and seeking career advice. What sort of advice would you give them for somebody who's interested in, in going into finance? Okay, I would give them, and I and I operate this way, when, I, when I, I bought the building that has my family office, it's right across the parking lot from the building, from the business school at Virginia Commonwealth University. So my office is open for any VCU business people to come by and talk to me. Mm-hmm. I'm always open to mentor them and talk to them. So they do, and one of the first things I tell them, I say, what should I do now when I, when I graduate? Go to China and teach English for really? a year. I say, go to China. And one of we, I had an intern named Jesse, and he came to me. He said, I'm going into business. I said, I said, what, why, how old are you, Jesse? He said, 22. I said, why do you want to bother with that right now? I said, go to China and teach English. I would do that right now if I he, could. Exactly. He went online, got hired, went to China and taught English, and then uh, stayed there another year, built a business helping U.S. companies come across and do the paperwork. And now he's back in the U.S. working. But my point being is, when you're 21 and 22 years old, why do you want to get into business now? Go to China, teach English for, for a year, then go to Australia and bartend for a year, then <laughs> then backpack for Europe, around Europe for a year. Now you'll be all of 24 and a half years old, and now you get got a resume I want to see. And, and you've now been I, on three contents. You've seen the world. You have exactly. a little experience. You might speak a little Chinese, which is going to become essential, and you know the Chinese culture. That's important. So that's what I tell these people is go to China to begin with and teach English. Secondly, if they want to get into this business, Man, it's not the same as when I got into it. When back in the day, it was so romantic. I mean, if you went to a cocktail party and you said you were a stockbroker, that was the coolest thing in the world because nobody could buy stocks themselves. They had to do it through you. You were registered with the New York Stock Exchange. Today, anybody can do anything they want to do. It's not even it's not even eight bucks. It's free. You that's could, a, there's a site called Robinhood. You could buy stocks for free. Absolutely, Ab, no cost whatsoever. Folio uh, advisor, same thing. You know, so the world has changed, and th- I'm not sure I would say get into this business. But if they really wanted to learn something that you will become the best at it, be the go-to person for whatever it is that you want to do. Don't just learn it in a cursory way because you're going to end up in the call center. If you're truly great at something, then you won't. That's fascinating. And my final question. You began in 1975, you said? 74, yeah. right at the end of that Yeah, right at the end of that period. So that was 42 years ago. Yep. What do you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you started 42 years ago? Well, I'll tell you what. You it. it it takes a, a lot of whiskers in this business. <clears throat> you know, you got to walk around a block a lot of times to get to a point where you have 
a general good understanding about what's going on in Wall Street. But I would say the point in figure charting. You know, if I could have been serious about it at that age in my 20s, uh-huh. <clears throat> then it would have gotten me on this road a lot sooner. You know, I had to learn through the school of hard knocks. If if that if that guy didn't bring that point and figure charting book to me that day as he walked in, what's what's the probability that the first guy I hire in my option department brings me this book? This one book. And Which it, was it, a life changer for it's you. A lo- and it was a lost art. Mm-hmm. Why this one book? And then the two of us look at this book. He looks at it as a way of trading. I look at it as a way of changing a whole industry. And these things that happen to you along the way, sometimes you got to have a little age on you to have that perception and understanding. Sure. You know, so I guess it all was exactly right. At age 39, I had to start the company by 40. I did it then. I was ready then. I'd learned enough. If I tried before that, maybe I, maybe maybe I wasn't ready. Maybe it would have failed. I don't know. Tom, this has been absolutely fascinating for me personally. Like I said, I, I've been reading your work for early since early, early in my career. I, I mentioned I uh, was introduced to you at a, a place called Prime Charter, which is now part of Oppenheimer, and it has been um, absolutely a privilege and pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. I want to say one more thing, Barry. Hit me. You know how we got together? I've been a reader of you. Oh, really? I read your blog. Remember, now, I now emailed I know, you. That's right. I emailed I you. I loved what you had written, and I emailed you to tell you that. It's the the um, Mutual Admiration, Admiration Society will, will well, it's come a fact. to order. I mean, it's a fact. You guys used to quote me. Yep. Used to pull stuff out that I had done and quoted. Exactly. And it was always a thrill for me. It's like, God, I was a, a green newbie when I started reading Dorsey Wright, and now I'm occasionally quoted in there, and I was just yeah, thrilled to death. Exactly. So Well, well, it's a pleasure meeting you. It's a two-way you. street, man. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> for those of you who enjoyed this conversation, conversation please be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on apple itunes and you can see the other 85 or so of these uh be sure and check out my daily column on bloombergview.com the blog tom was talking about is the big picture it's at ritholtz.com i would be remiss if i did not mention taylor riggs and charlie volmer the producer and booker of the show mark is my recording engineer and michael batnick is my research assistant You've been listening, research assistant. He's actually the director of research and helps me put all these uh, questions together every week. And I wouldn't be able to do these shows without him. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.